So we're in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. If you brought a Bible, or if you want to use one of those in the pew in front of you, or on your smartphone, it's always good to have it in your lap in front of you while we talk, even though it's going to be on the screen as well. So uh, I'm a sports fan. You probably know that by now if you've been here long. Uh, even if you're not, or I should say, if you are not, something that might surprise you is to learn that in professional sports, the very best athletes, the top ones, make more money from clothing and shoe companies than they do from the teams they play for. So they'll make more money, they'll get paid more by Nike or Adidas than they will by the, the, the actual sport that they play. And, and that's, I, I looked it up this week, I was trying, or as I was re researching for this sermon, I was trying to figure out, okay, who's the, who makes the most money in endorsements? Uh, it depends on which list you look at. Now, one list says that it's Cristiano Ronaldo, the, the Portuguese soccer star. Uh, soccer's big on the list because it's the worldwide sport. It's the world's favorite sport, not necessarily here in America, although I bet there's some soccer fans here. Uh, but Ronaldo is known as the walking billboard because everything he's wearing from his, from his shoes to whatever hat he has to ha happens to have on, everything is, is, he's paid to wear it. Can you imagine? Every, every item you put on, you're making money. Um, there are a lot of basketball players on the list. The top two uh, for endorsement deals are LeBron James and Steph Curry. Both of them, over the course of their lives, they have lifetime contracts with particular companies. They're expected to earn over a billion dollars each. And then there's a lot of golfers on the list, too. And the top one, believe it or not, is a guy that doesn't really win tournaments anymore. His name, you might have heard of him, his name is Tiger Woods. Uh, so, so Tiger was the golfer for a long time. And then around 2009, you may be aware of this, his life sort of fell apart. And a lot of companies distanced from him, but Nike stuck with him. And to this day, doesn't matter whether he wins or loses, he gets paid millions every year to wear that swoosh on his chest. Now, if you're not a sports fan, you may think, that's ridiculous. Well, I agree with you, and I am a sports fan. It is silly. But keep in mind that these decisions are not being made by sports fans. They're being made by business executives and CEOs that, that run some of the most successful companies in the world. And they decide that it makes good business sense to pay millions of dollars to this handful of individuals, mostly male, because they think, well, when people see them on TV wearing our gear, they're going to say, I want some of that. Now, I'll tell you where I'm going with this in just a minute, but this series in Colossians is about making Jesus preeminent, making him number one in every facet of our lives. There's nobody in this room, nobody you know, who can say Jesus is preeminent over everything in my life 100% of the time, but that's our goal. That's what the book of Colossians is about. It's written to a church 2,000 years ago in the Greek city of Colossae that was starting to drift away from biblical Christianity. And Paul writes to say, what you need to do is make Jesus king of your church again. And I'm here to tell you as pastor of this church, that's my goal. That should be our goal is to be a church where Jesus is preeminent. We have to never stop fighting that battle of making him uh, preeminent over every aspect of what we do, over our preferences and our ministries and our conversations and our priorities. And that's true of you as an individual. If you want to live the abundant life, if you want to be the person that your family needs you to be, that your neighbors need you to be, you want to be the witness that, that uh, the, the non-Christians in, in your life need to see it's going to be because you made him preeminent in your life. We saw two weeks ago, it's not just following rules. If all you have is rules, then you're, you just have legalism, and that won't save anybody. 
Last week we saw how a key part of making Jesus preeminent is to kill the sin in your life. Like a good gardener, you have to, you have to be out there with your hoe every day killing those weeds, otherwise the, the fruit won't grow. And in the same way, you and I have to be on a constant battle against the sin in our lives. We talked about mortifying sin. And I gave you a prayer to pray all this week in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And hopefully some of you did, and you prayed, Lord, just seek my heart, search my thoughts, show me any wicked way in me so I can be right with you. But I'm here to tell you, it can't stop with just getting rid of sin. Christianity is not sin management. It's more than that. It's walking in the footsteps of Christ himself. If all you are is a person who has killed all your outward sins, then you're no better than the Pharisees and the scribes that persecuted him. We have to put on something. We can't just take off the old dirty garment. We have to put on something new. And that's what these verses are about. Verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So just like these massive companies will pay famous athletes to wear their gear, God chooses us to be His celebrity endorsements. <laughs> so to speak. We are to wear the garment of Christ. We are to wear Jesus wherever we go so that the world will see us and say, I want some of that. That's our purpose. That's essentially why when we get saved, God doesn't just immediately rapture us into heaven because we are his ambassadors down here. So how do we do that? In this passage, we see four components of what it means to put on Christ. And I want you to think about it this way. Think about when you wake up and you put on your socks and you put on your shoes and you put on your shirt and you put on, not in that order, obviously. You put on every garment before you walk out the door. You need to put these qualities on before you walk out the door of your house every morning. This isn't something we can just stand up today and say, I am here for, I am therefore from this point on putting on Jesus. This is a decision you have to make every day. And the first one is the love of Christ. You have to put on the love of Christ. In, in verses 12 through 14, there's this list of qualities that Paul names one after the other. Just like last week in the first part of Colossians 3, he named specific sins that the Colossians struggled with. Here he's saying, These, this is what it is to put on Christ's love. This is what it looks like when you put on Christ's love. You're compassionate, you're kind, you're humble, you're, you're meek, you're, which means gentle. You're, you're patient with others. You're forgiving toward those who've hurt you. You know, those, those qualities have two things in common. One, one is they're not celebrated by this world. If you strive for these qualities... They won't put you on a, on a magazine cover for being humble, for being forgiving, for being patient with others. When you go to HEB or Kroger and you see the magazines in the rack when you're standing at the checkout counter, the people on those covers, they might be good people, they might not, but I guarantee you they didn't get on those covers because they were humble. They got on there for some other reason. 
You're not going to get rich by being forgiving. You're not going to get powerful in any political sense by being compassionate. The world doesn't celebrate these qualities. Chuck Colson, some of you know this name, if you're old enough especially, Chuck Colson was a high-ranking official in the administration of Richard Nixon when Nixon was president. So this is late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Colson was known as the hatchet man. Because let's face it, let's be real, in national level politics, there's always some dirty tricks going on. There's always some behind the scenes, under the cover, uh, dark dealings and, and, and slightly illegal or maybe outright illegal things that happen in order to get an agenda passed. Chuck Colson, the difference with him was he was out front with it. He was proud of it. He told newspaper reporters proudly, I, I'd run over my mother to get what I need. And then he got arrested for the things he'd done in, in office. And then he went to jail. And while in prison, he met Jesus Christ. And this guy who was the hatchet man, the, the dirty trickster of all dirty tricksters, became totally born again. And the world thought that was hilarious. You can look it up. There, there are political cartoons from those days depicting uh, Chuck Colson in his, in his slick marine haircut with angel wings and a halo as if, isn't it hilarious that this guy's trying to convince us that he's become this saintly person? But the transformation in his life was real. And the proof is in the life he lived after he was saved. Because to the day of his death, Chuck Colson did two things. He wrote books about Jesus and he ministered to people in prison. That was his life. You can't get any further than grasping from grasping for power than to say, I'm going to devote my life to ministering to people who are behind bars, who can offer me nothing in return. You have to make a choice, friends. I'm not saying you can, you can never be successful in an earthly sense if you are a Christian, because there are people in this room who I consider strong disciples of Jesus who've achieved earthly success. My point is that if that's your goal, you can't follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, that can't be your goal. You have to choose. You have to say, whether I succeed in this life, whether I'm rich in this world, whether people look up to me, whether I achieve any power at all, what matters more is that I become humble, that I become compassionate, that I become forgiving, that I become patient, that I become kind. Is that your goal? Is that what you're striving for? See, it wasn't just, it's not just, those aren't just qualities that we don't esteem today. It was true in Paul's day. In Paul's time, when he was writing this letter, Roman culture ruled, and power in Rome was everything. And so they saw these qualities as the qualities that a slave would have. Who would want to strive for this? And this is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying, our message sounds like a joke to this world. We preach a crucified Messiah. We preach a man who said, come and follow me by taking up your cross. The world doesn't think that amounts to anything, and yet you have to choose that path if you're following Christ. Is that the path you've chosen? Is that what you're striving for? There's another thing those qualities have in common is we see them in the life of Jesus. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four biographies of Christ, you'll see that he was compassionate. He never turned away someone who was hurting. 
You'll see that he was, he was kind even to his enemies, even to the ones who drove those nails through his hands and feet. You see that he was humble, humble enough to wash the feet of his disciples hours before he was arrested. You'll see that he was gentle, that he did not use his strength, his power to hurt anybody. There's that great story of when Jesus and the 12 go into this Samaritan village and the Samaritans there say, we don't want anything to do with you, get out. And James and John, the sons of thunder, come to Jesus and say, I've got a great idea, Lord. Let's just call down fire from heaven on them. Let's just go full Elijah. And Jesus says, what do I have to do, you son? What do I have to do with you, sons of Zebedee? You and I are not on the same page. He was gentle. He was patient toward the 12 who constantly got it wrong, and yet he never gave up on them. And he was forgiving. His whole life was built around the mission to ensure that you and I got forgiven of our sins eternally. We need to put on the love of Christ every morning. The world needs to see that because they won't see it on magazine covers. They won't read it on the internet. They won't see it in our leaders, our celebrities, our, our athletes. They won't see it in anybody but the people of God, and we have to show it to them. Secondly, we need to put on the peace of Christ. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I love this because in Greek, the word rule is a word that literally means act as an umpire. And again, promise for you non-sports fans is the last thing I'll say about sports today. But uh, if, you, if you know anything about sports, you know that in every sport, the umpire or the official, they rule. You can't change their mind no matter what you do. They may even know they're wrong. They're not going to change the call. And for, in baseball, for instance, baseball is, is a sport where a, a, a dude who, who is old enough to be a grandfather dresses up like a player, okay, which is ridiculous enough already, and then when a bad call happens or a call he disagrees with, he comes stomping out of the dugout and essentially acts like a three-year-old on national television. He kicks, he spits, he yells, he cusses, he essentially throws a wall-eyed fit, the kind of thing that would get you and me grounded uh, until we're 21. This happens in virtually every game. Never once does the umpire change his call. Now, some of you are like, ah, ah, but there's instant replay, Jeff. Oh, yeah? You know who makes the call on instant replay? Another umpire in another location. So there. I'm still right. The umpire doesn't change his call. What I'm saying is peace has to govern every decision that you make in every relationship. I'm saying that if we are following Jesus, if we're putting on Christ, we're taking our relationships so seriously that we won't say anything that we know is going to hurt someone else, that is going to drive a wedge between us and someone else, that we're not going to use language that someone else is going to find offensive, that we're not going to make decisions that we know are going to cause conflict, that are going to cause heartbreak, that we're not going to take action that's going to stomp on someone else's rights or someone else's hopes and dreams. In everything, we're going to be governed by peace. Now, are there times when the peace has to be disturbed? Yes. 
You've got a loved one, you've got a friend who is headed in the wrong direction, and you have to grab them by the lapels and, and shake some sense into them and speak some hard truth to them. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the Lord leads us to make decisions that people who love us disagree with, and that causes conflict. Sometimes we have to take action that disturbs the peace temporarily, but always, always, always that must be motivated by love and the truth, and never by our own preferences our own desires, our own sense of, uh, of self-actualization. We're never the ones who say, I got to be me. No, you don't. You got to be Jesus. Because I got news for you. Being you hadn't worked yet. Hope that doesn't offend anybody. Actually, I do. I, this is the time to disturb the peace. So, 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 so live this verse, Romans 12, 17. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, with peace, live with peace with everyone. That means, that means that guy, right? That means that woman. That means those people. Whoever you're thinking of right now, oh, I can't live at peace with them. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you must. That's what it means to put on Christ. And it also applies to our inner lives. Some of you might remember earlier this year, we, we went through a series on Peace. It was called fearless. We talked about what it means to live a life that overcomes the fears in your life. You can't control how you feel. It's no sin to feel afraid, but it is a sin to let fear rule and make your decisions for you. And that great promise in the scriptures, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you have that inner peace? that everything is going to work out, that God is in control, that I can give it over to Him, that I can obey Him even when it's hard. Let peace rule. The third thing we need to put on every morning, we need to put on the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ, it says in verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice he doesn't say just read the Bible. He says, let the Word dwell in you. Let it live in you. Let it govern your decisions. Let it shape your thinking. Let it make your worldview and your self-image. Let it, let it determine every choice you make. We should drip the Word of God. And Paul doesn't say read it, even though he assumes we will. He says, sing it. It's, it's one thought when he says, let the word of Christ dwell, dwell in you richly, and then he goes on to say, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The early church, they sang songs about Jesus, and they sang old songs that, that were from the psalms, that were written by David and Asaph and the others. Why does Paul say that? Why does he say it that way? Because he knows that music has a power to implant messages in our, in our minds and on our hearts that the spoken word does not. I love preaching. I, I love doing this every week. But I know, I'm, I'm realistic enough to know, most of you are going to forget what I say within five minutes of walking out of here, okay? If you're even paying attention now. But you still remember the songs you danced to when you were a teenager. You still remember the songs your mom sang to you when you were a toddler. You can, you can sing songs from memory that you haven't heard in years. And I'll prove it to you. You ready? Here's a test. See how you do. The stars at night are big and bright. There you go, Essie Brown. Was that, was that who that was? Okay, anyway. Um, okay, here's another one. No, it's unseasonal, but deck the halls with boughs of holly. Right, right, right. Now, uh, this goes back to some of our childhood. Jesus loves me, this I know. 
Okay, this one isn't as hard. We did it today. You called my name. There you go. Okay, now this one, some of you in first three, first three rows may not know, but um, yeah, I've forgotten it. <laughs> Thank you. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Everybody. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate it. So... I'm not saying that every song you listen to has to be a sacred song. But I am saying that when the internal soundtrack of your life is from the Word of God, it's going to change the way you think in a good way. Listen, you've got all kinds of... If you're like me, there's always a song going in your mind. And personally, I think, I think the jingle for the Burger King commercials is straight from the pit of hell, okay? <laughs> so, So... So put some stuff in there that leads your mind and heart in the right direction. Take advantage of the opportunity to sing these songs that we sing on Sunday mornings or listen to them on the radio or, or find them on Spotify or whatever you want to use. But let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then finally, we need to put on the name of Christ. The name of Christ. Verse 17 says, and this is one of those verses that if you memorize it and you live it, it'll change everything for you. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This does not mean, by the way, that when you go out into the atrium and somebody's left some donuts there, you have to announce loudly, I eat this donut in the name of Jesus. <laughs> it simply means that you acknowledge that everything you do from the day you get saved, everything you do reflects on him one way or another. You are wearing his garment. You are representing him in the world. And when you do things in the name of Jesus, you are intentionally saying, I'm going to make sure that what I do now reflects well on him. So I'll give you a negative example from my own life. When Carrie and I first got married, when we first married, when we got married, there we go. I had just gotten a job. We had just graduated college. I, I was working in the warehouse. I was the warehouse guy in a little three-person company uh, just outside the loop off 290. Um, wasn't a fun job. It wasn't an exciting job. I was shipping and receiving. So product would come in. I would load it in the warehouse. Orders would come in. I'd box them up and I'd ship them out. That's what I did all day. But it was fine. I was newly married. Life was good. And then after three months, God called me into the vocational ministry. This is not something I expected. Now, this is a whole other story how that happened. And I'll tell you another time if you haven't heard it already. But one of the unexpected consequences of me understanding my call to the ministry was I started to hate my job because I couldn't wait until May of that next year, which was eight months away. May was when we were going to move to Fort Worth and I was going to start seminary and I was going to learn theology and learn how to preach and lead a church and how to do ministry. 
I couldn't wait for that. And I couldn't wait to work in a church. And I couldn't wait to serve God. And I was so excited about that that I began to hate my job, which is so ironic because that was my opportunity to serve the Lord. Do everything that you do in the name of Jesus. I didn't do that. Now, I wasn't lazy. I wasn't a bad employee. I wasn't disrespectful. But I would love to go back in time. Because, see, my boss was, a non, was not a Christian. I would love to go back in time and, and relive those eight months, not just because I was, you know, 22, but, but because I would love to be able to go to work every day in that little dead-end job, that little $15,000 a year job, and do it in such a way that I glorified Jesus and have the attitude that showed my non-Christian boss, this is what Jesus looks like shipping and receiving in a warehouse. See, when you get this principle, it changes everything. Suddenly the most mundane activities become an act of worship. Suddenly the, the worst opportunities, uh, the worst circumstances become opportunities to praise God. Uh, when your job requires you to do things you don't enjoy, and we all have parts of our job that we don't like. If you start to see that as, I'm doing this for Jesus and to His glory, then it becomes an act of worship. When you experience pain in your relationships, because we all do, you start to say, okay, that person's really difficult right now. I'm going to choose to love them the way Jesus loves me. When life gets unfair and, and, and things are against you and you're, you're just downhearted as can be, if you say, yeah, but the world's watching me now to see if I react differently than they do, it's an opportunity to wear the name of Jesus. It changes everything. And if you say, well, that's too much pressure. I don't think I can deliver. Remember, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. You can do it. So what am I challenging us to do? I want you to write this down or take a picture of it with your phone because I'm going to give you a prayer uh, that's based on this passage we just read. And I want to challenge you to pray it every day. Of course, you don't need to use my words. You can say it in your own words if you choose. But it'd be really fun, really awesome to see what God would do if we all prayed the same way this week. The prayer is this, Lord, I pray that today people would experience your love in me, that your peace would rule in my life, that your word would richly dwell in me, and that I would do everything in your name. Amen. So when you pray that prayer, you're asking for the power of God to live out the life you're supposed to live, to put on the garment of Christ, but you're also reminding yourself, today I am representing him. No matter who I see, no matter what I experience, I am representing him. Let's try that this week. Now, some of you might say, I'm not getting paid to do this. I'm not Tiger Woods. I'm not LeBron James. I'm not Ronaldo. Why should I do this? Well, think about it this way. Jesus was the king of the universe. He was this perfect, sinless being who dwelt in unimaginable glory, worshipped by legions of angels. No chance that anything bad would ever happen to him. But he knew what Isaiah 53 said. He knew that Isaiah 53 foretold that the Messiah, when he comes, he'll have to wear our burdens, our sorrows, our sins, our griefs. He'll wear a crown of thorns. He'll wear nails through his wrists and ankles. He'll feel the weight of all our sins as they are draped across his shoulders. And Jesus came anyway. 
That's what He was coming to put on. He was putting on our sin so that we could put on His righteousness. He was offered a lifetime contract to wear the ugliness of humanity and to bear the wrath of God so we could be saved. Who takes that deal? Who signs that contract? Only Jesus. So it's not because we're hoping for some future reward that we wear Jesus every day. It's because of what He's already done. And because the world needs to see Him in us.